and we ask you to turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. And I want to give a message this morning that normally I would give on a Sunday evening. But as I've uh, tried to think through uh, ending up Malachi and where we are as a church, and the Lord just seemed to, for the last couple of weeks, give me a very strong impression that this was a message for the morning. And so I want to ask you to listen attentively to what God has to say to you over every pew in this church, from the front to the back, in the middle, in the balcony, every chair in this choir loft has been prayed over today by men in this church who came here early and stopped by pews and sat in pews and got on their knees by pews and prayed that you would hear the message this morning. And so when I ask you to listen with that in mind, that God has something that he wants to say to you, that this is not a message for somebody else, but it could be a message for you, a defining moment for your life to decide where you are and who you are and what you're going to be for God. Forget for a moment that you're caught up in the holiday season and you've got gifts to buy and all those things going on, for this is a moment that God has for some of you to cross over and to be more than you've ever been. I love sports, but I've noticed something about sports. There are people in the crowd, and then there are fanatics, the fans. There are people that will occasionally go to a game if the weather's right, if it's not on television, uh, if they've got something they're especially interested in, and then there are people who will spend the money to buy season tickets, and they're there, rain or shine, sleet or snow. They wear the school colors. They cheer for the alma mater. They're involved. And, and some of them are involved in alumni associations and booster clubs. And, and by the level of what they commit to, they get their name in a program. And you start looking down through the program and you say, oh, these people are really committed to this school. And I began to think about that in light of the kingdom of God and church and realize that in the church there's the crowd and then there's the congregation. There are those who occasionally come if the weather's good and if who they want to hear preach is preaching and if the music is what they think they want it to be and if the program's convenient or if it fits into their schedule or if the weather's just the right temperature. And then there are those who will come, rain or shine, sleet or snow, doesn't matter what's going on, they're just going to be there. Because they love the Lord and they love their church and they're going to be a part of what God is doing in that place. And the level of commitment is not determined by a chart. It is determined by the heart. And you and I determine which group we're in. We determine if we're in the crowd or if we're in the congregation. We get to choose. God sets the standards. God tells us what he expects of us, how he wants us to live. He tells us the cost and demands of discipleship, and then he says, you decide where you stand. I'm not here this morning to be anybody's judge. I am here this morning to not be a troublemaker, but a troubleshooter. That is the role of the prophet. The role of the prophet is to, just like a troubleshooter in industry comes and says, here's the problem, here's what you have to do to correct it, the prophet is God's troubleshooter and he comes in and says, this is the problem and if you want to correct it, this is the solution. Malachi has been doing that all through this book. 
This is a book which has been a message from God. In fact, the name Malachi means my messenger. And over and over and over again, Malachi has come before the people of God and he has said, this is what God's complaint is against you. And they would always ask a question. How could God complain about us? How could God be displeased with us? How could God not accept what we're doing? How could God not accept the way that we're serving? How could God not accept our religious exercises? Malachi says, this is what God expects, over and over and over again. And he has pointed out, quite honestly, what the problem with the crowd is. Now he comes to the end of this book, and he tells us the difference between the crowd and the congregation. The difference between living on the fringes and being in the middle of the action. The difference between sitting in the stands and watching the game of life go by and getting on the field and playing and participating in that game. And so I want to ask you to pick up with me in verse 13 of Malachi chapter 3. <clears throat> Malachi chapter 3. And these words will help us distinguish between the crowd and the congregation. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against thee? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed, and not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish. Notice that he's distinguishing something. Distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Now, notice, if you would, the crowd. The crowd says, what profit is it that we have kept his charge? The first thing about the crowd is, is that the crowd will show up for flash and dance. They're there for the food, the fun, and the fellowship. They're there for the parties. They're there for the miracles. I mean, if there's something exciting happening that appeals to their feelings, they'll make it. They will show up for that which is not costly or demanding. Dr. Havner said, well, it is a pity that we have to reward and coax and beg and picnic our members to do what they ought to do if they loved God. And that is a classic statement on the problem in the church today. We have to beg and reward and coax and plead with people to do what they would do if their hearts were right with God, it would be as natural as drinking water and getting up in the morning. It would just happen immediately and naturally if we were in tune with God, but the crowd's not. The crowd just shows up for the stuff that's easy, for the things that are cheap. And in fact, the, the church crowd has infantile paralysis. We've never grown up. And the truth is that today in America, in churches all across this country, of all denominations, of all sizes, and of all bents, there are more babies on the pews than there are in the nursery. People who have never grown up with God, 
And it doesn't matter where the church is or what the church is all about or what the church says it stands for. The average pastor in America knows that however many he preaches to on Sunday morning, half will be back on Sunday night, if he's lucky. Because the pastor has to live with the reality that most of the membership he is called to pastor never hungers after God. They never want the things of God. They never want the mind of God. They want God to bail them out of situations. They want God to make them feel good. But the average member of a church never wants to go on with God, never wants to go deep with God. They just want to use God like a pacifier. In fact, the crowd thinks that God owes them something just because they got dressed and showed up. But God doesn't owe us anything for showing up. It's what we do after we get here that matters. So the first thing about the crowd is they're just caught up in flash and dance, just in the show. Man, I like that music. I tell you, music's good. You know, Dalton Loretta over here singing and the rhythm section's playing. I tell you, that was nice. You, know, you can turn on FM radio and not hear anything that sounded any better than that. The choir singing. I tell you, I love to come to church at Sherwood because the music's always good. Well, what if we didn't have music one Sunday? Would you come? Or is it you just came to be entertained or did you come to be blessed? There is a big difference between entertainment and coming to let God speak to you through the music that he has given us. Not only does the crowd show up for flash and dance, but secondly, the crowd views everything from a fleshly perspective. Now here's what the crowd forgets. The crowd forgets that God hears what they say that God hears their careless thoughts and their carnal tongues. And their evaluation of what God is up to, God hears it. It would make a difference, I think, in the way we speak if the people we talked about heard what we were saying. Would it make a difference in what you said this week? It would make a difference in what I said if the people I've talked about knew what I said about them. You see, God hears what we say about him. And God hears our evaluations of what he is about and what he's doing and how he's working. And they say, this is what God records that the crowd says. It is vain to serve God. And by that I have the word written, malcontents. They're just malcontents. They discuss among themselves the worth of serving God. And they come to the conclusion that anything less than just the minimum is useless and empty and worthless effort. They ask the question, what profit? In other words, what's in it for me? What's my reward if I serve God? What do I get out of it if I serve God? There's no concept of eternal value and of eternal reward. These are people who expect immediate results and payment for their church work. Now here's their mentality. They will say, you know, if I don't serve God, if I don't give my time, if I don't give my tithe, if I don't give my talents, I, I can go on a more expensive vacation. I can have some more time off just to sit around and cool my jets. I, I, I can own a better car, live in a better house. Uh, if I had that extra money, I, you know, I could do this, and so I'm going to keep it for myself because, after all, investing in God's work doesn't make any difference anyway. God doesn't pay very good dividends. You know, interest is not good on God's work right now, and so we're going to invest in something that we think produces more dividends for us. 
Now, there's an interesting thing about this word prophet. The word prophet means to expect a cut or a percentage. To expect a cut or a percentage. Here's what they're saying. They're saying the same thing that the drug dealer says when he dispenses the drugs to lower dealers and he says, now, I expect a cut off the deal. It is the mentality of the gangster and the drug dealer in the church. God, if I give you this, I expect something back from you. God, if I do this for you, what's my percentage? What's my part of the deal? And so they come to the conclusion, it doesn't really pay to serve Jesus. They are arrogant in their evaluations, and they are haughty in their attitudes. Now, notice in verse 15, here's their ultimate evaluation. They tell you who they think God's really blessing. They say, I tell you, God's blessing the pagans. That's who he's blessing. We call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. I tell you who the blessed ones are. Here's the crowd's evaluation. I tell you who the blessed ones are. The blessed ones are the people who are living like they please, doing whatever they want to do. They sleep in on Sunday. They spend their money any way they want to spend it. They're not obligated to anybody. In fact, they are living so far away from God, they're daring God by their lifestyle to do anything to them. They're the people who say, man, I'm going to go out and sleep with as many people as I can sleep with, and I dare God to allow me to get AIDS. I'm just going to test him on it. I'm going to live however I want to live, do whatever I want to do, and they're getting away with it. They're putting God to the test, and they're escaping. God's not even punishing them. I tell you who God's blessing. And God doesn't bless preachers, and God doesn't bless missionaries, and God doesn't bless churches, but I tell you who he blesses. He blesses Jim Carrey. That's what I'd want on my tombstone, too, dumb and dumber. Except Jim Carrey's tombstone is going to read stupid and idiot because he can make the world laugh, but there's no laughter in hell. But you see, the arrogant, the crowd says, now there's a guy that's made it. He hadn't made anything because he can't take anything he's made with him. It's viewing life with no eternal value. It's saying, boy, if I could just make that, if I could just have that, if I could live that way, and serving God's not getting me anywhere. I'm not getting blessed by serving God, so I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And I will come to church, and I will be respectable, but don't ask me to sign on any dotted line. Don't ask me to go any further than I want to go. Don't ask me to be committed because I'm not interested in that. You can summarize the evaluation of the crowd in four statements. First of all, service to God is useless. It's just useless. Secondly, observing the commandments is of no profit. There's no profit in serving God. Thirdly, God is blessing the worldly. Just remember, if you make that statement, that the only blessings the worldly ever get is in this world. The blessings that we get last for all eternity. And finally, the crowd says, I want to know how little I can do and still go to heaven. How little can I do and God still bless me? How little can I do and escape? Now, the congregation is different. The congregation is the remnant. And all through the Old Testament especially, you see this picture of the remnant. God's chosen people who have served him and loved him, they're the ones that the 400 prophets who were hidden out when Elijah thought he was the only one, the remnant is all the way through. They're the ones who made it through the wilderness. They're the ones who made it through the captivity times. They're the ones that have survived all the persecution and the problems, the remnants, the ones 
that hear the heart of God and listen to God and see God and know God and obey God. Now, look at, if you would, at the congregation. First of all, they have a reverential fear for the things of God. They have a reverential fear for the things of God. Look at verse 16. Those who feared the Lord. Look at chapter 4 and verse 2. For you who fear my name. Now, what is it about this reverential fear? It means that they take the name of God seriously. That the blood of Christ is too precious. That the cross of Christ is too sacred. And that the name of Christ is too holy to be flippant about it, to be casual about it, to be arrogant, or to think that you can spend your life not honoring that name. They fear the name of the Lord. Now, the reference to fear in the Old Testament would be identical to the reference to faith in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, fear was the apex of a person's relationship with God. The New Testament, that fear leads to faith. It is a reverential awe of God that leads to faith. And the New Testament tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so he is talking about these who fear God, these who have faith in God, who obey God, and notice their focus is on the Lord, not on his benefits. Their focus is on the Lord. Their focus is not on what God's going to do for me. That's the crowd's focus. The congregation's focus is on, I want to please God with my life. And so their focus is on the value of the name and reputation of God. And that word fear means a reverence or a respect for authority or for deity. It also means this. It means to fear displeasing someone you love with all your heart. To fear displeasing someone you love with all your heart. I tell you, it's that, it's that reality of Simon Peter standing before Jesus, knowing that he had denied him, and not able to look him in the face, because he forgot to fear God, and he feared a servant girl instead. It is reverential fear, it is awe, it is a righteousness, a holy attitude, and they esteem his name. It means they're not mechanical or ritualistic. They don't just go through the motions of religion. It flows out of them, their fear and love for God. Not only do they have a reverential fear, but they enjoy fellowship with one another. Notice that it says they spoke to one another. You see, their reverence for the Lord affects their relationship to one another. First of all, first and foremost, they feared God. That's vertical relationship. Then, out of the fear for God, they spoke to one another... They encouraged one another. That's their horizontal relationship. You see, you can tell a lot about whether a person's in the crowd or in the congregation by what they talk about when they're around other people. They spoke to one another. What did they speak about? Well, they didn't talk about the weather. They didn't talk about football. They didn't talk about basketball. They didn't talk about baseball. They didn't talk about shopping tips and who's got what on sale. They, these people in the congregation, although they have other interests, and although they enjoy talking about other subjects, you give them a chance and they'll turn the conversation to the things of God. They will begin talking about the Lord. They'll begin talking about God's goodness and about God's grace and about God's love. They will find some way to bring into the conversation and the people they enjoy being around the most are the people who want to talk about Jesus. 
Now, if you don't want to talk about Jesus, you're already in the crowd. If you don't enjoy that, if that doesn't bring joy to your heart to talk about the Lord and to speak to one another about the Lord, then you're in the crowd and you need to be in the congregation. Thirdly, the Lord hears and observes the congregation. Notice in verse 16, And the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him. Now remember, the Lord heard the crowd. They were arrogant. They said it's in vain that we serve God. But the Lord also hears the congregation, the remnant. Now get the idea and get the picture. There's a group of believers standing around after church talking somewhere and they start talking about the things of God and how good God is and how great the Word is and how the music blessed them and what God spoke to them that day. And the Lord kind of leans over to some angelic scribe and he says, write that down. I don't want to forget that. And the Lord has a book of remembrance where when he hears our conversation about him and our praise of him and our love for him and our adoration of him, he writes it down. You say, well, God doesn't need to write it down in a book. He doesn't need to remember it. God remembers everything. He doesn't have to have a book to remind him. No, but he has a book written down to remind us that he remembers. Why does he remember? He remembers so he can reward. He goes down that list. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians he goes down that list and he says, oh, here's a time when you remembered me. Here's a time when you spoke of me. I'll reward you for that. The ancient kings of Persia had a list like that. They had a book of remembrance. And they would write down the good deeds of their people so that the kings who followed them would remember the good deeds of the people and those who followed them. And so God has a book of remembrance. And the faithful have the ear of the Father. You might not get center stage in this life, folks. You may never be in the spotlight. You may never even be called on to lead in silent prayer. But I can tell you this. God remembers every name. God remembers every face. God remembers every cup of cold water given in his name. God's not any man's debtor. He remembers our conversations. One of the great things about this church is to watch people on Sunday night stand around and talk and fellowship. Sometimes it's hard to get some of our folks to leave. You know what I think when I see that? There's the congregation. Those people just don't want to leave church. They're not rushing out trying to figure out what they're going to do. They just enjoy being around God's people and they enjoy standing around. You know what? God says, I listen to those conversations. I see those things going on in the aisles. I hear those conversations over the dinner table, and I remember it, and I'll reward you at an appropriate time. There's a third thing about the congregation, and that is actually the fourth thing. The Lord is pleased to possess them as his own. Look at verse 17. And they will be mine on the day I prepare my own possessions, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Now, there are four things that tell us he is pleased to possess us. Number one, we are God's property. We're God's property. Notice, they will be mine. The Hebrew word means to set aside a thing or to set aside a piece of property. It means to stake out land and claim it as his own. God has staked us out, and he has said that you're my own. 
You're within the boundaries. You're my property. Secondly, God's treasure. He says, my own possession. I like what King James says there. It says jewels. We are God's crown jewels. Listen, in heaven, we walk on gold. And the gates to the backyard and the front door are pearl. But the jewels of heaven are not streets of gold and gates of pearl. The jewels of heaven are God's children, God's own. We are the treasure of God's heart. God cares so little about gold that he puts it down and makes it what we walk on. God cares about the people that walk on the gold. We're his treasure. We're his possession. Thirdly, we are God's son as a man spares his own son. The New Testament tells us that we are heirs and joint heirs with Christ. We've been adopted into the family of God. He says we are God's servant, you who serve him. You see, you and I have no problem serving God if we value the God we serve. Those who will not serve, those who will not give any time, those who won't respond when asked to respond, listen, that's the crowd. The congregation will always respond if there's any way possible and say yes because it's not too hard for me to serve a God that I value as much as I value my God. Notice the next thing. The Lord sets them apart in verse 18. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. God sets them apart. Listen, I don't know who's in the crowd and know who's in the congregation. I could make some hunches but they're judgments based on my limited perception. But I know one who knows, and that's the Lord. And the Lord says there's going to come a day when I'm going to show everybody who the righteous are and who the wicked are. That's why Jesus said when the wheat and the tares are growing up together, don't go pulling out the tares of what you think are tares because you may get some young, fresh wheat in there and you'll destroy somebody that doesn't need to be destroyed. You let me take care and there's going to be a day when I'm going to separate the wheat from the tares. God sets apart. God draws a line in the sand. He divides and he says the righteous are on one side and the wicked are on the other. Now what happens when he divides and draws that line? Well, the Lord reveals... Who's real? That's the last thing we'll look at this morning. First of all, the crowd will be judged. These are not easy words. They're not easy words to read. They're not easy words to preach. Chapter 4 and verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. This is written to God's people who are in the crowd and think they have a right to judge what God is up to or to question God's authority or to not esteem his name or to say that it is vain to serve God and it's of no profit. These are the last words that they will hear for 400 years. God is speaking and he's saying to them as they raise their questions and voice their opinions, you cannot escape what's coming. You can have all the opinions you want to have, but you cannot escape what is coming for those who choose not to choose to be in the congregation. Those who decide, I've done all I want to do. I want to do as little as possible. I want to be respectable. God says there's coming a day for respectable religion for Sunday morning 
Christianity, if you will, there is coming a day when you will be burned like chaff. It is a stern warning from a loving God who says, you don't have to end up that way. But if you choose to stay on the wrong side of the Word of God, then you will one day be burned up like chaff because you have respectable religion, but you don't have a walk with God. You have an interest in the things of God, but there is no reverence for God. You are interested in Jesus, but there's no love for Jesus. And God says there's coming a day when the arrogant, the proud, and the haughty, and the opinionated will be consumed. Notice that he says the congregation will be blessed. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall, and you will tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb before all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. First of all, I want you to see that there is righteousness. Righteousness. This is the only time in Scripture that the Lord is called the sons of righteousness. Now, notice what he says in verse 3 and match it up with verse 1. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under your feet. Now notice in verse 1, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and there will be neither root nor branch. Now, there are two words here. There's a word for the crowd. The word for the crowd is, you think it's vain to serve God? You will end up as ashes under the feet of the righteous. There's a word for the congregation. You wonder if I'm ever going to settle the books? You wonder if everything that's wrong is going to be put right? There's going to be a day when this earth will be covered with the ashes of respectable religion and casual Christianity that is really no Christianity at all and people who say they love God and they're concerned about God and they want to go to heaven but they never gave their life to me and it's all going to be burned up and those who walk with God are going to walk on the ashes of the dead and say, I told you God was right. God paints a brutal picture of people who have rebelled against him and questioned him and questioned his authority and questioned his words all in the name of respectable religion and says it's all going to be burned up. And when that happens, I'm going to let the remnant walk on the ashes of those who walked all over them. God always gets the last word, folks. Man never gets the last word. You say, well, that's not the way I think God is. doesn't matter. That's the way God says he is. God is a God of love. But if you turn that coin other, God is a God of judgment. And he hates sin. And he will not accept what we accept, which is below his standard. It's not only righteousness, but reverence. Those who fear my name. The congregation is going to be blessed because they reverence the name of God. Remembrance is the third word. He protects those that he remembers. And then rejoicing. We have been spared from wrath, 
and spared for blessing. Now I want you to look, if you would, at verse 2, where he talks about you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. I love that picture. I, I remember when I was growing up, on my grandfather's farm, and he had a lot of cattle on his farm, and I, I remember he had some stalls and some pens in the back, and every now and then we'd, there'd be a new calf, and, and they'd pin that calf up for a while. Sometimes my grandfather wanted to make sure that he was nourished and he had enough stamina, may have been a little weak, but there came that day when uh, that calf would be let out of the gate and it kind of bound around. And if you've ever been on a farm, you understand this. If you haven't, explain it to somebody on their way out. That'll help them to appreciate the things of life. But, but the calf would kind of knock its way around and kind of halfway get out. But once that calf realized it was out of the stall, it started bouncing. I mean, have you ever seen a calf? They, all, they try to act like a deer. You know, they just kind of bound and, and their legs are wobbly, but they're out there and they've been imprisoned and now they've been set free. And they're running around and it's almost like they're looking at the herd saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. I finally got out of the pen. I'm here. It's a picture for us if you're in the congregation because we have been bound by the stall of sin. But when God set us free and opened up the gate and said, I'm the door and you can come through me, we got out and found the herd. We said, I'm here. You know, there's something interesting about the congregation. There's something interesting about the remnant. I can go to a church where I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody's name, and they don't know me. And you give me a week or two, or you give me a couple of worship services, and I can find the remnant. And kind of be like a calf. I recognize the herd. I see them out there and I can run toward them and say, I'm here because the remnant knows how to recognize one another. That's why when some of you move to town, you go to a church and you look around, you, you want to know what the pastor's like and you want to know what the worship's like and you want to know what the doctrine's like and you want to know what the music program's like, but I tell you what you really look for if you're part of the congregation. You look for the herd. You look for the congregation. You look for the remnant because you know the remnant's going to tell you a lot about the church. Where the heart of the remnant is. And he says there's going to be rejoicing. Bounding around and rejoicing. I love that picture. I tell you folks, there's going to be a day when we get, finally get out of this stall that we're in called human life and we're going to break through another gate. And we're going to see the Lord face to face. And we're going to be rejoicing and bounding in His presence and praising God and clapping our hands and singing songs to Him and stomping our feet. We may even do a little dancing if the Lord allows Baptists to dance in heaven. And I'll tell you something else. We'll be a lot more excited than we've been this morning. Nearly 3,000 years ago, God sent men to Israel to warn them, to remind them of his law and of his word. They rejected the prophets. And in rejecting the prophets, they rejected the Lord who sent the prophets. The crowd didn't do one thing God told them to do. And they are like chaff. The congregation hears what God tells them to do and they 
absent from the body, are present with the Lord. Are you in the crowd, awaiting judgment, or are you in the congregation, awaiting ultimate blessing? You see, there is a word for today that spans the decades and the times. And it is the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 13 when Jesus said, Unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. And so I remind you what Jesus said in Matthew 13 and what he said in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit of God says to the church. Would you pray with me, please?